Hello and welcome to the March edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and coming up on this programme. I'm John Kay and I'll be finding out about the 43 Group and their Forgotten Battle, a JW3 event that'll be presented by writer and historian Daniel Sonnebend. I'm Kate Fulton and I'll be speaking to Dr Aviva Deutsch about her JW3 series Modern Jewish Literature. I'm Tony Honigberg, and I'll be talking to Natasha Applebaum about how doctors, back in 2014, gave her just a day to live, and how she defied them. I'm Clive Brosnan. I'll be hearing about the truly amazing work the charity Call to Care does. It helps Ukrainian Jews make aliyah. And as if all of that isn't enough, we'll have a rather delicious sounding bit of advice courtesy of Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips just in time for Pesach. Yup, can you believe it's nearly upon us again? And our rabbinic thought for the month comes from Rabbi Harvey Velosky of Golders Green United Synagogue. But before all that, with a roundup of Jewish news over the past months, I'm Vivian Krieger. A new study of 7,000 Israeli health workers by the Sheba Medical Center in Ramat Gan has revealed that a first dose of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine is 85% effective. The research, which was written up in The Lancet, seems to support the British government's decision to go ahead with a mass single-dose programme. The study showed that the effectiveness of the jab kicks in between 15 and 28 days after it's given. A man appointed to London Mayor Sadiq Khan's Statute Diversity Commission has been forced to resign after being accused of anti-Semitism. Toyin Agbetu was one of 15 people appointed to the commission, which will review the capital's landmarks. However, comments he'd posted in a blog claiming victims of the Holocaust were served well by Nazi hunters compared to African victims of the slave trade were enough to get his resignation before the mayor had to ask for it. The controversial Mr Agbetu was also a vaccine sceptic and a harsh critic of some prominent black people in the UK. The BBC has said it was wrong to say Israel has a responsibility to vaccinate Palestinians against COVID-19 under the terms of the Oslo Accords. During one Dateline London programme in January, the presenter Sean Lay made the suggestion to the journalist Jonathan Sakadoti. Mr Sakadoti insisted it was the responsibility of the Palestinian Authority to seek vaccine supplies through the World Health Organisation. After a complaint from the public, the BBC issued a correction and admitted it was wrong. The UK's oldest synagogue has been given almost half a million pounds to protect its heritage. Bevis Marks Shul near Orgate, which is a Grade 1 listed building, received the money from the government's Culture Recovery Fund. It's specifically to protect its collection of significant objects and illuminate the history of the site. Bevis Marks opened in 1701, 45 years after the readmission of Jews into Britain. Israel is lifting many Covid restrictions and easing out of the latest lockdown. The country's green passport system means that those who've had the vaccine or the virus itself can go into those areas now opening up such as museums, shops, libraries and gyms. There are restrictions though on the numbers attending sporting events. However, Israel's airports remain closed to all but emergencies and freight. The suspension of inbound and outbound international passenger flights is ongoing. And finally, two kinder transport evacuees who were both recently honoured by the Queen have died. 
Walter Kameling, who was 97, and Mark Schatzberger, who was 94, were awarded the British Empire Medal. Mr Kameling was born in Vienna in 1923 and was sent to Britain when he was 15. One of his sisters and his parents died in Auschwitz. Mr Schatzberger came here when he was 12, having also lost his parents in the Holocaust. Both men were highly regarded by the Holocaust Educational Trust for selflessly sharing their experiences over many years. Viv, thank you very much. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, the story of anti-fascist organisation, the 43 Group, is probably not as well known as it deserves to be, but a forthcoming event for JW3 should help give it due prominence. Writer and historian Daniel Sonnebend will host the 43 Group and their Forgotten Battle on Wednesday the 10th of March at half past seven. It explores, among other things, how the original team quickly grew to over 300 members and how the lessons are still relevant in this day and age. To find out more about this remarkable assembly of post-war servicemen, we're going to be joined by Daniel himself, who is the author of We Fight Fascists. Daniel, how did this group get together in the first place? It was largely put together by returning Jewish ex-servicemen who were coming back from the Second World War battlefields and returning to their homes in areas like uh, Dawson and Stoke Newington and, and parts of less, uh, West London as well, and beginning to realise that British fascism was trying to make a return and that the powers that be, the government, the police, weren't doing anything about it. And the fascists seem to have absolutely no shame, absolutely no compunction about coming back onto the streets, publishing their materials, putting up platforms in Jewish areas, especially uh, Dalston in Hackney in the East End, and starting to harass the local Jewish community again, Dolby anti-Semitic graffiti, harassing Jews on the streets, and uh, putting their newspaper sellers out on street corners selling anti-Semitic literature. And these returning Jewish ex-servicemen thought, you know, we've been sent to the battlefields to defeat fascism, to defeat Nazism, to stop racism and anti-Semitism. And here it is on our street corners and no one's doing anything about it. And, you know, they went first to the sort of the Board of Deputies and Ajax, uh, the Association of Jewish Ex-Servicemen, of which they're all members and, you know, demanded that something be done. But these organisations didn't want to do anything that would break the law in any way. So they decided to take matters into their own hands. And, you know, thought, you know, we've been sent to fight fascists in Europe, around the world. Why not do it at home? This is the same mission, basically. Did they know each other beforehand anyway? Some did. It was, you know, many of them hung around the same clubs, particularly Maccabi in West Hampstead, Maccabi Sports Club. And they were members of boys clubs in and around the East End. So it was very much a network of, you know, a couple of guys, you know, came up with the idea or sort of it sort of grew organically. And then they told their friends or the people they'd served with and suddenly sort of new sort of petered out throughout the Jewish community. And there were some people like, for example, the hairdresser, the famous hairdresser, Vidal Sassoon, who was among them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in those days, Vidal Sassoon was a 17 year old boy as a, an apprentice at that point. And he, but he did become a member and actually one of the more famous members of the group. But they did actually have some quite famous alumni, including the guy who designed the Beatles logo and other sort of quite a few people who actually made quite significant contributions to 60s and 70s life in Britain and, you know, did very well later on. So they did break the law, did they? Oh, absolutely. 
the main way they were confronting the fascists was through these you know, public street meetings. In those days, there was no Twitter or social media. If you wanted to insult the Jews, you had to go to where they lived. So they were in particular an organization called the British League of Ex-Servicemen, who put up platforms, especially in Ridley Road and Dalston, and you know, spewed out anti-Semitic invective. And to combat that, this sort of the 43 group basically turned up and tried to stop them putting over their message, as they put it, which meant first heckling. And when they saw that wasn't working so well, and then the fascists were still coming out, they began to try to smash them off the platform, basically, and start fights. And so very much minor law breaking or major law breaking, depending on who you ask, was uh, very much part of the sort of the modus operandi. They were pretty tough guys then. Yeah, absolutely. Many of them were trained soldiers. And even the ones who weren't, they had some young, younger guys who never didn't serve in the army. You know, they grew up in the East End of London, which was a very tough place to be for a young Jew, especially if you're growing up during the, the fascist East End campaign in the 1930s, around the time of the Battle of Cable Street, where, you know, young Jews were easily often targets for sort of hordes of black shirts. So you had to be really tough to survive in that environment. And so, you know, these were tough guys. They had to, you know, they knew that they had to fight in, in order to survive. So how did the 43 become 300? Well, they became 300 quite quickly and then actually grew to about 2,000. Estimates say they never had any mem- member list. But, you know, there were plenty of people who were very sympathetic to what they were doing. Jews mostly, but also non-Jews, a few of them men and women, ex-servicemen and non-ex-servicemen, people who really believe that, you know, we've been fighting fascists and how dare they come back and therefore we want to join up. Much of what the group was doing, especially in the sort of the summer of 1947 around Ridley Road and Dalston with these huge fights, that got a lot of press attention. The more press attention it got, more and more people turned up. That had an inverse effect that the fascists also got some of their support, more supporters as a result of that. But the group was able to grow because it was beginning to develop a public profile. How did general society view both the fascists, the British Union of fascists or their supporters, and the 43 group at the time? The 43 group never had a huge distinct profile until maybe towards the end. They were normally just seen by the press, by the police as basically communist agitators. They hadn't, the police completely failed to sort of tell the difference between the 43 group, which was anti-fascist, and the communists who were fighting alongside them. So, and this was something that the 43 group had to deal with the entire time, to say that, you know, just because we're fighting fascism does not mean we're communists. This is a fight that we should all believe in. In terms of the the way the fascists were responded to and thought of by the uh, British public, I mean, most British public you know, really was not, you know, took against the fascists, you know, they shared in the indignation that how dare they be back? How dare they sort of come back out into the open? But it's an interesting thing that when a gentleman stands up on a platform, and he sounds like you and he's wearing a nice suit. And, you know, he begins to talk about issues that you're dealing with, such as, you know, why there's still rationing going on, why there's still austerity going on, begins blaming the Jews, which makes a lot of sense to you, because, you know, anti-Semitic propaganda has been around for hundreds of years and Jews are often to blame, then that doesn't sound like fascism to you. That sounds like good old British common sense. And although we're at a time when there is, in the wake of the sort of the news of Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen, a a slight wave of philo-Semitism, anti-Semitism is still a very prevalent force in British society. 
the fascists were basically just maintaining their anti-Semitism. There were plenty of people who would sort of get on board with that, no matter what they thought of the fascists. You know, I've read one correspondence from a housewife who basically says something along the lines of, you know, they they hate they don't like the fascists, but they don't like the Jews either. So, you know, they like to hate them both in equal measure. But in terms of the popularity of the fascists, if they were ever popular, mm. and they were never that popular in Britain. Presumably, they were more popular between the First and Second World War than they were after the Second World War. Absolutely. They probably had, at their peak in the post-war era, one-tenth of the amount of supporters, maybe even one-twentieth the amount of supporters. They were never going to, well, they were never going to reach that sort of heyday that they had when they had around 100,000 members in the sort of 1934 era. And the Jewish establishment at the time, the Board of Deputies and other organisations, how did they feel about the 43 group? Because you said they were reluctant to actually do very much to take on the fascists. They hated the 43 group. There was a gentleman called Louis Heidelman who ran what was called the uh, Jewish Defence Council, which was of the Board of Deputies, which was very much about combating anti-Semitism. And his the thing he was most trying to stop from 1946 and 1949, when he died, unfortunately, was the 43 group. And they were he was constantly trying to get them to close down. And he was constantly trying to, you know, they were, he was often having spats in the pages of the Jewish Chronicle with the head of the 43 group, a man called Jeffrey Bernard. So, you know, he was very, very strongly against the 43 group and he did represent the board. But there were plenty of other people on the board who actually was quite favourable to the 43 group, you know, sending them money, especially uh, helping them out, giving them contacts with other businessmen who would be able to fund them. So, you know, there wasn't one uniform view of the group, even within the board. And are any of them still around today? A few. It's you can pretty much count them on one hand, but there are a few left, mostly the sort of the younger members. The one who was probably the youngest member for quite a long time in the group just celebrated his 90th birthday. The event is called the 43 Group and Their Forgotten Battle. It's on Wednesday, the 10th of March at half past seven. And we've been hearing about it from the man who's hosting the event, writer and historian Daniel Sonnebend. And his book, We Fight Fascists, comes out in paperback later on this year. Daniel, thanks very much indeed for joining us on this edition of Jewish Views. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, if you're anything like me, you'll appreciate the workings of a good book. After all, we are a people of the book. There is an ongoing series run at JW3 called Modern Jewish Literature, and it's hosted by our next guest, Dr. Aviva Deutsch, who is here to tell me a little bit more about it. All these groups are standalone, aren't they? So if people have missed to date, can they still join in? Absolutely. And I do, I mean, I set myself a real challenge, which is we do a different book every week. So people don't have to have read the book in advance. In fact, I'm the only sucker who has to have read the book in advance. So I have to read every book every week. But I try and bridge it so that some people read it to get a taste and decide if they want to read that week's book. Some people have read it before and come along to chat. Some people just come along for the social. So just so that we just we're all aware, what constitutes a Jewish book? Is it the author, the characters, the plot? How do, how do you choose what's going to go in your series? I throw everything up in the air and I'm really lucky because I have the privilege of picking things that I'm interested in. So sometimes I will deliberately look for Jewish authors and particularly, you know, 
high profile British Jewish authors. So, you know, if Howard Jacobson has a new book out or Naomi Alderman or Charlotte Mendelssohn, absolutely they go on the list. But I also, I might look at not just fiction, but memoirs. So is there a Jewish figure who's interesting who has a memoir coming out? We're about to do in the summertime Michael Rosen's memoir. We're also going to look slightly more controversially at Barbara Amiel's, the wife of Conrad Black. And then I look at biographies a little bit, so writing lives, or we look at books which either have specific Jewish content and interest. So we've just done a novel that's about Ethel Rosenberg, who was the last woman to be executed in America. And we're currently in the 70th anniversary of her trial, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg's trial, her husband, although the novel specifically focuses on her. And sometimes it might be a novel that is neither about someone Jewish or by Jewish person, but maybe possibly gives us insight into the Holocaust or into something, a moment in Jewish history. So another book that we've recently explored has been about the Cairo Geniza, for example. We did a novel a couple of years ago that wasn't written by a Jewish woman, but it was about the beginning of the programme that led to the final solution, where young children with disabilities were euthanised. So, and it was a very beautifully written novel. So again, I thought the topic was interesting enough. It sounds dreadful. I mean, it's very, very dark and depressing, but actually the language was luminous. So, so I kind of, I take the concept as wide or as narrow as it feels suitable in that moment and also sometimes I might throw in poetry as well. The books then are are they mainly fiction or do you sometimes take a work of non-fiction and and, and discuss that? Yeah I'd say we do about 60 to 70 percent fiction it is modern Jewish literature. So if we're choosing non-fiction, it's either that because the writer or the topic is very interesting and so, or sometimes because it's particularly beautifully written. But the majority, I'd say, maybe 70% of fiction. Right. When you mentioned that the Cairo Geniza or whatever it was, the, yeah. I, I wondered if that was We've part done of, both, um, actually. We've done non-fiction and fiction. There have been two recent novels about the Cairo Geniza. There was an Israeli novel we did last year, which was translated, The Night Watchman. And then we've also recently done Dara Horn, who's an American author, Her Guide to the Perplexed. And both of them write these dual narrative novels, which are po- a bit like A.S. By Its Possession, They're partly set in the contemporary world about someone who has some link and then partly set Mm. in the 19th century exploring Solomon Schachter's discovery of the Geniza. So you choose the books depending on all all sorts of things and then people come along to to one of your, is is it a lecture would you say or is it more of a discussion group? Very much a discussion. Contributions are incredibly necessary part of the class. So how do people know if they've not read the book what to say? What what is their part of the discussion? Do you read a portion out or aloud? I always choose sections in advance. I give very thorough handouts. I'm really aware of what the copyright limit is. So I always kind of go up to that, but no further. So you get many pages 
So I, I send extracts ahead, which again, people don't have to have read, but some people like to have. But in the class itself, I will screen share and we will read short passages and we'll really explore them. So we talk about how it's written and structured. We often read the openings. We ask what would intrigue people and make them read on. Sometimes we do character studies. We might trace the journey of a particular character through. Sometimes it's about the setting. And often I look at the novel or the work of nonfiction to learn more about that particular book. But sometimes I use them as examples of things we might want to think about. So for example, if it is a novel that uses, that also writes about very real history, but in a fictionalized way, we might say we might have a session which is more focused on what are the ethical issues in fictionalizing real life. You're the director of Jewish Renaissance, which Mm -hmm. is the Jewish arts magazine. And for people who aren't yet, I'm saying yet, subscribers, tell us a bit about that. So it's a quarterly magazine which covers arts and culture from across the Jewish world. So yes, we are we are the UK's premier Jewish arts magazine. More subscribers than actually any other Jewish quarterly magazines ever had. But we also, in every issue, we focus on a different place we have what's called passport section. So last issue was on Prague, our next issue is on Ireland. We're hoping to do Tokyo this summer. So we always kind of look at an international Jewish world and we work with, for example, the director of the Prague Jewish Museum and Prague's Jewish cultural publications. So we're a mix of a kind of very UK-based arts review and a kind of international Jewish survey. And we always also look across Ashkenazi and very much Sephardi and Mizrahi voices too. And I believe you got your own app. We do. You can have a Jewish Renaissance. We have an app. You can access Jewish Renaissance in print or online digitally. So you can get our archive through our website or you can download the app through Exact Editions. So if you download the Exact Editions app, you can get Jewish Renaissance as a magazine to read on your digital device. And as far as the the booking and just going back to the JW3 series, how do you book how's it working on zoom is it through the normal jw3 website absolutely through the normal jw3 website and the great thing about zoom i mean the one benefit of lockdown is we now have students not just from across the uk but across the world so log in at any point and come join our students from south africa america and across the uk and if you can't come to all of them can you come to one you can come to one and if you do book for a series but there's one or two you can't attend just let us know in advance and then we'll send you the recording the series is called modern jewish literature and it's a continuous series which you can dip in on and dip out of and we've been hearing about it from dr aviva deutsch thank you very much for speaking to us on this month's edition of the jewish views and if you'd like to get any more information about this series jw3.org.uk You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. 
My guest is Natasha Applebaum, who in 2014, diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, was told by doctors that she had just a day to live. Natasha, welcome to The Jewish Views and thank you for coming on to the program to tell us how you defied the doctors and their prognosis. Firstly, will you please explain what acute lymphoblastic leukemia is? Absolutely. Well, with leukemia, there are four different types. So acute lymphoblastic leukemia is one of the most aggressive types of the four. And typically, it's found in young children and babies. And although it's the most aggressive, it's also the most curable. So from the four, it's known as the best one to have. When you first went to the doctor, how did you know you were unwell? What were your symptoms? So initially, I had a lump in my breast, which alerted me to go to the doctor in the first place. But I also had a a terrible cough. So it was those two things which were the main reasons why I went to the doctor. And when you got there, how did they tell you their diagnosis and their prognosis? It wasn't as straightforward as that. And I wasn't in a bad way at all. I was actually feeling fine. So despite this cough, I just put it to the back of my mind and the lump I just thought could have been a cyst or something. And what happened was I went to get a biopsy on the lump and the lady at the time said to me, I can see it's not cancer, but I want to just do a biopsy and we can then send you off with a pat on your bottom and you'll be on your merry way. Anyway, from that result, I got suspected lymphoma. So I went to see a breast cancer specialist, a doctor called Tim Davidson, and he told me that it was suspected lymphoma and he would have to run some more tests. So we ran more tests. I had full body scans. And when I went back to see him, by the way, this was all within a period of one week. When I went back to see him, he said to me that I had as well as a lump in my breast, I also had a lump in my chest and that was really large and I would need to go and see an oncologist the next day. And that's when things started to get real after hearing the news of having both a lump in my breast and chest because that was really scary for me to try and digest and understand. And it was upon seeing Mike Potter, who's my oncologist today, At the time, I don't think he quite knew the diagnosis, but he said that I was very sick and he would have to run more tests. He was pretty sure that I had acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Gosh, you were 26 at the time. Yeah, well, thereabout. I was 27. What was your immediate reaction to the first diagnosis? And then, uh, of course, telling you how long you've got. Well, I was terrified. It wasn't that I was told I had a day to live. My doctor on reflection tells me that if I was a day later, I wouldn't have lived because the tumour in my chest was so close to my heart. Upon hearing the confirmation that I was very sick, I remember my doctor saying to me, Natasha, you do know what this means by the word chemotherapy. This, This will mean like and he went into the detail about what that would mean for me and that's when it all became very real and very scary and it was a Friday night at the time I remember very clearly we were meant to be going to my auntie and uncle for Shabbat and I tried to reason with the doctor for one night to go with my family and be able to 
processed and used with them. And the doctor wouldn't let me go because he said that it would be very irresponsible of him to let me go. And that was when I started on treatment straight away. You spent a long time in hospital. You were about in hospital for about six weeks, weren't you? Yeah. Initially, from that day on, I was in for six weeks. Then I went home for maybe a month or so, and then I was back in for six weeks. I was in and out the whole time for uh, the first 10 months, and then it became sort of more sideline. When you were in hospital for those first six weeks, were you straight on chemotherapy, or were they trying to do other things? I assume they had to remove the lump first. See, that's funny because that's what I thought originally as well. And although it was like a bloody mess, so actually everything went from chemotherapy. Everything integrated from chemotherapy, which is really good. So I started on chemo maybe four days into being at the hospital. They had to strengthen me first with steroids. And then I started on chemo straight away. How long were you on the chemo for? I was on it for two and a half years. Wow. I know, it's a long time, but it was intense for the first 10 months. And then it became, the majority of it was in pill format. Apart from one of the processes they do is like an injection in your spine. And that's where they inject chemotherapy into the spine directly. And they also take out a fluid to test for cancerous cells. And that I had throughout the whole two and a half years. I've probably had 20 of those injections over the two and a half year period. You hear some nightmare stories about people having chemotherapy. Was it a nightmare for you? I mean, the treatment of it. The word itself is very scary. I used to actually ban the word because I feel like it just sends shivers down your spine. But in reality, the support around you is amazing, number one. And also number two, they they give you medication to counteract all the side effects so for example the sickness is terrible but they do give you anti-sickness pills to try and stop that the exhaustion is horrendous I can't even describe what it's like it's just you just want to sleep the whole time but then there are peaks and troughs throughout so sometimes you have really really good days where you actually feel back to yourself and then there are other days when you're just too exhausted to get out of bed even to eat And obviously there was a hair loss, but I actually dealt with the hair loss pretty well, if I say so myself, because I used to be an actress. And so for me, I've had fun with it. I cut my hair really short at the beginning so that I could just see what it was like to have really short hair and also to try and beat the hair loss and also to make it lighter so that it would fall out more slowly. That didn't work. And in the end, I ended up having to shave my hair. And then I played around with lots of different wigs. So I had long ones, short ones, colourful ones. So I had a lot of fun with the wigs and hair pieces and hair scarves and things like that. It was like being back in hair and makeup then on a film set. (laughs) Exactly. That's what it was like. And every day I could look different. It was like very experimental and fun at times. Were you depressed with the chemotherapy? Did it make you depressed? I know it made you tired, but were you actually mentally depressed with it as well? At the time, I was, I know it sounds weird, but after the initial shock, I actually was really elated because I was surrounded by so many, so much love and care and attention and kindness that I was actually overwhelmed and blown away because I also wrote a blog at the time. So as well as my family and friends knowing, the community also knew about it. So I gained a lot of support and I really felt that it actually made me feel really, really happy. 
And then maybe a few months into it, I felt quite sad. But a depression didn't actually kick in until like two years in when I'd been on chemo for quite a while by that point. And the whole realization actually kicked in of what I'd been going through. How did you get out of the depression? What was your way of getting out of it? Time was a healer, I must say. And I just took a step back from everything. And I really focused on just being kind to myself. And I actually started making candles. And so I had a lot of candles. I would light them and then they would run empty. So I taught myself how to make them. So as I started to make them, then friends and family heard about it. So I started to make them for friends and family as well. And I just became busier. And as I got busier, I slowly started to lift out of the depression. Focused on something new. Yes. Are you still making candles? Yes. I've got a business. I recently launched an e-commerce website with a subscription service. You can subscribe to having a monthly candle. And if we were not in lockdown, I'd still be doing market stalls and events and things like that. Yeah. What's the business called? It's called Tash Tamar. And what's the website? How do people find it? It's www.tashtamar.com. Now, back to the acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which you mentioned earlier on, that it's quite a common form of leukemia and it affects both males and females and, and young people young yes. ladies, young men. What advice would you give to those who find an abnormality? doesn't matter whether it is lymphoblastic leukemia, just if they find a lump anywhere on their body, what would you tell them to do? I would say you should be vigilant with checking yourself. And if you do find something, don't be scared, but do go and see a doctor straight away so that they can rule out if it is, you know, Hopefully it will be nothing, but if it is something, they can see too quickly and then you can get better quickly as well. What message would you give to others who are in a similar situation, maybe feeling depressed and can't see through the brick wall that's in front of them? What would you say to them? Although it sounds cliche, there really is a light at the end of the tunnel and I couldn't see it for a long time, but it definitely arrived and you have to trust in that. I was there. I, I lost all sight of myself. I could not recognize myself anymore. But slowly but surely, I did come through the other side. And when you do get there, it really is incredible. You have so much appreciation and gratitude. And you really do take away so many amazing things that you wouldn't necessarily gain if you don't go through like these dark times. And apart from your business, where are you going further forward? Well, moving forward, I also work for a private equity company, so I'm very busy with that. And I hope to meet the man of my dreams and <laughs> have a family one day and that kind of thing. That's your dream going forward. Lovely. Natasha, thank you very much for coming on the program. You've been very informative and I wish you well in the future and Thank with everything you. that you've got and health-wise as well. And I hope other people can take something from this. Me too. I really do. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, over the years, many individuals and families, since the Jewish state was founded back in the 1940s, have gone there. And should that be the path in life that you want to follow in the UK, 
relatively straightforward to do it. However, if you come from a more vulnerable, perhaps, the process isn't easy for some. And Call to Care is a Ukrainian charity, and they help Jews based there who want to go to Israel obtain their paperwork. Sandy and David Dix are the UK representatives for Call to Care, and David joins me now. Tell us about Call to Care, what it's all about, and how did you get in, involved with it? Call to Care actually has grown out of our love for Israel and our respect and gratitude towards the Jewish people. But in 2014, after having visited the Ukraine in 2007, when the war broke out in 2014 in the eastern side of Ukraine, we contacted the charity People Who Care in, in Ukraine and asked them how they were faring in the war zone. They mentioned to us that over 4,000 applications had been received from them from the war zone. And could we please help? So my wife and I had been supporting People Who Care in the Ukraine, and they made us their UK representatives to collect funds for them in the UK. This was after us just sending a few donations, but soon the bank said to us we had to register as a fundraising organization. As we went through, the contributions grew and grew, and we have landed up having to change the name to Call to Care because there is another organization in the UK called People Who Care, Caring for Old People. So we had to change our name to Call to Care. But we still raise funds for people who care in the Ukraine. And we know that they are doing the same work that they were doing when we were there. We get reports from them. We get financial statements explaining what happens to the money. And we get the life stories of the vulnerable people that we've been helping, which is really inspirational. It's, it's wonderful to, to receive that. Can you give me an example of people you've helped? Without their names, of course. Yes, of course. We, we have a family who employment in the Ukraine is really difficult. And one of the families that, well, they were in, in the war zone when the war broke out. They fled to St. Petersburg in Russia, where being promised work there. They soon found that the work that they were promised did not meet their needs at all. They had to then move back to Ukraine and went to Venezia because there's a good Jewish community there. But again, things went wrong. And they then appealed to people who care for aid to help become Olim. And his, his wife was pregnant at the time. And they were, so for them, it was rather a desperate time. So what we do is we supply funds to people who care in the Ukraine. They then have representatives who go and meet that family after they've applied for help. We help them with their passport, their bank clearance, etc., their proof of Jewishness, etc., and help transport them to the airport where the Jewish agency takes over. 
what I find is quite extraordinary and, and remarkable. It's even more remarkable as you're not actually Jewish. So why does it mean so much to you? Well, I, we actually have to contest that because according to DNA, my wife has 1% Jewish blood. 1%. <laughs> so, you know, as Christians, everything we know about the Bible was written by Jews. The very Jesus we follow was basically a Jewish rabbi. And everything that we love about serving Hashem has been written by Jews, and our contact with Jewish people has just enhanced that. And when we went to Israel in 2006, I think we fell in love with the land as well. When I was at school, my best friend was a Jewish fella, and we've never had a problem with Jews. And we've been horrified at the whole thought of that the Holocaust could even have happened. So for us, it is the most horrendous thing to even contemplate. And we cannot understand how anybody who thinks of themselves as Christians could even support it by remaining silent. So, you know, that for us was, we're grateful for the scriptures, we're grateful for the relationship we have with our Jewish friends, but we're also wanting to try to mitigate the damage caused by misguided people in anti-Semitism. I think that's absolutely amazing. You must be something that's very real. I'm very moved by what you said. It is, it is quite extraordinary. It's all absolutely true, but it, it, I must say, you must be one of the most admirable people I've, I've met in recent times. I really wouldn't take that one on, but as far as, you know, in the scriptures it actually says, that the, the Gentiles will help to bring the people to Israel in Isaiah 49, 22. So, you know, we're actually just being obedient to the scriptures. And so the Tanakh says it, so we, we need to do it. And we don't see it as anything extraordinary because really the miracle of this whole thing is that to, to date we've been instrumental in helping raise funds to help 519 people, but the donations have come from people who we feel Hashem has brought across our path because we've not done major advertising. Well, I find it all quite extraordinary, and I am very, very, very delighted to have talked to you about it. Thank you very much indeed. An absolute pleasure. Tell me how if one gets in touch with helping call to care uh, the best way is to visit our website which is www.calltocare.org.uk thank you very much indeed and it's been a great pleasure to talk to you thank you thank you you're listening to the jewish views in association with jw3 well passover is nearly upon us once more yes i know hasn't it come round really quickly all things considered well, to get us in the mood and to have a few culinary ideas of what we might do again differently this year. I'm delighted to say that we can now hear from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. So, Denise, what's on the menu this time? Everyday Passover is the theme I want to share with you for Pesach 2021. 
entertaining for large numbers of more than 10 or more people. For COVID reason, it's just not going to happen unless, of course, you have a large household. Preparing, cooking for small groups and making it special for all the right religious reasons is more significant than ever before. So I want to make this night different and special from all other nights. So it's back to basics. Regular everyday ingredients are what you need to buy. I would like to share some tips, culinary advice and recipe ideas to help you achieve this. Essentials from the list below are necessary, but few luxuries for single use are needed, especially as packets often come in large sizes. You need, of course, matzah, dairy, proteins, oil and vinegar, pantry products, fruits and vegetables, and some herbs and spices, and of course, plenty of eggs. Mayonnaise, crème, pickled cucumbers, jam, honey can all be used after Pesach. But ingredients like Passover ketchup, potato flour, Passover matzo meal, which I can assure you is different from the regular brand, and Passover cereal, buy minimal or not at all. I find I end up throwing most of these ingredients out every year. If you plan your menus well, you should only buy what you need. So let me give you some good tips going forward. Always write notes on the Pesach menus and recipes that you have used in previous years and make a note of what worked well and what was not enjoyed so much. Plan your quantities carefully so that you do not have too much left over. Choose a Seder menu. That is, this is a good idea, easy to serve. Will not dry out if the Seder service goes on longer than anticipated, because it always does. And leftovers are just perfect for Yontif lunch the next day. Choose recipes that are created KFP. That's KFP, kosher for Pesach, as these will work better. Trying to substitute regular ingredients for Pesach ones does not necessarily give the best results. Start shopping early. You'll get the best choice. Avoid the rush. Of course, it'd be safer and keep an eye out for those special offers. There are normally lots on offer in many supermarkets and kosher shops. Buy smart. Do not overbuy. You can always top up during the week and check the use by dates in case you overbuy. Get an extra dozen of eggs as they're always needed. Recipes to include in your everyday pace of this year Soups and savoury bakes, meatballs, shepherd's pies with mincemeat or vegetarian and the like. They're always family favourites and they freeze well. My favourite soups to include like roasted carrot and onion, beetroot and sweet potato, leek and potato are healthy and filling too. The savoury bakes, nut roast, potato and mushroom kugels, vegetables and matzo and cheese toppings, frittatas with potatoes are all delicious and economical to make. Main courses, fish and meat stews, vegetable tagines using permitted vegetables, spices and dried fruits are easy to make. And desserts, well... Using basic ingredients like eggs and ground almonds, sugar, cinnamon, chocolate, apples. You'll be amazed how many recipes you can make. 
I have quite a selection for you to choose from my website, jewishcookery.com. And my favourites includes apple cake, chocolate and raspberry jam cake, rocky road clusters and fruit strudel. So keep it simple, keep it tasty and if possible, keep it on a budget. Have a fabulous Pesach Chag Sameach. Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips there with some delicious sounding ideas for Passover 2021 or 5781. And of course... For more information, you can always go to Denise's website, which is jewishcookery.com. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the month. And this time it comes from Rabbi Harvey Belovsky of Golders Green United Synagogue. It's that time of the year when the seasons are changing. The days are getting longer. It's not quite so dark in the morning. And I think we can say the spring is on its way. In fact, the new year for trees, too, Bishvat's already been some while ago. And in the spring... There are two festivals of redemption, which reflect the fact the seasons are changing. In the Shashirim, the Song of Songs, the verse says that the winter has passed, the song of the dove can be heard in the land. And we see this as a symbol for not just the end of the dormant period of nature, but also the end of the quiet winter season. And we begin our spiritual adventure for the year with a bang, with Purim and Pesach in the spring this year, Purim in February and Pesach at the end of March. Now, the rabbis explained that the two must go together. In a leap year where there are two months of Adar, we celebrate Purim in the second Adar so that we can juxtapose the two festivals of redemption and liberation. But Purim and Pesach are very different from each other. Pesach, celebrated with the Seder, eating matzah and so on, is about remembering great divine visible intervention. Purim, on the other hand, is very much about a story in which we piece together the divine hand but do not see it explicitly do not see it openly. It's interesting how we do the Purim before Pesach. I think we need to prepare ourselves to learn as nature wakes up, to wake up ourselves, to become alive to the visible hand of the divine and to the invisible hand of the divine. And when we're able to see remarkable moment, experience beauty in nature, see something extraordinary that we'd never experienced before, see wonder in a relationship, in the child's face, we can see the divine behind our lives and in normality. And Purim enables us to focus that particularly. The story never mentions the name of God, yet Purim is understood by the Maharal of Prague writing in the 17th century that it should be read as Pirurim, crumbs, bits and pieces that we stick together to make a bigger story. And when we've done that on Purim, we're ready to face the divine head on at Pesach. And so this is something which we're familiar with. It's a seasonal development and looking at the seasons as an opportunity for spiritual development as well. And so it's a time of redemption. It's a time of development. And we please God hope as well, a time in which gradually the restrictions with which we've all lived for so long gradually release. It'll be a great year of liberty, success and health for all of us. Thank you to Rabbi Harvey Belovsky of Golders Green United Synagogue with our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this episode of The Jewish Views. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to our guests, Dr. Aviva Deutsch, Daniel Sonderbend, Natasha Applebaum, David Dix, and Denise Phillips. And of course, thank you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to say thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, who, as ever, has worked tirelessly putting this programme together. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the show in your podcast application. That way you will be informed when new episodes become available. And of course, you can hear all the previous episodes of The Jewish Views. For more information on any of the guests that we have featured on this show, you can always visit our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And so on behalf of the team, that is Kate Fulton, John Kay, Clive Roslin, Tony Honnickberg, and myself, Phil Dave, thank you very much indeed for listening to this month's edition of The Jewish Views. Until next time, goodbye.